Hey, Real Talkers, can we agree the loudest voices don't always represent majority opinions? In this episode of Real Talk, we're going to find out what Canadians actually think about a parent's right to be informed by a school about their child's pronoun changes. The next Prime Minister of Canada, appropriate supports for wildfire evacuees and parole for convicted killers. This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. want to welcome you to this uh, September 7th episode of Real Talk. It's Jesperson and Hicks here in just a second. The president of the Angus Reid Institute, Shachi Curl, uh, if, if you're in Western Canada, uh, if you're a member of our audience or an occasional tuner from British Columbia, you know Shachi. You've seen her basically holding court as the moderator in, in both provincial and federal election debates. And of course, her and her team at Angus Reid, I mean, their job is to have their finger on the pulse of the country. What do Canadians think or how do Canadians feel about some of the top news stories, about some of the issues that we're staring down. They've got recent polling on Pierre Poliev versus Justin Trudeau. How did Canadians feel about who would be the better prime minister two years down the road from right now? They're also talking to parents across the country about the story that's been making news in New Brunswick and Saskatchewan. I want to fact check myself, by the way, Johnny, yesterday in conversation with our two uh, uh, panelists, our roundtable panelists contributors talking about school classroom sizes and private schools yeah. and, and pronoun uh, rules and legislation all that kind of jazz i talked about this about a story out of ontario and saskatchewan after the fact i was listening back and went ah of course it's premier blaine higgs in new brunswick whose government made the first move on this yeah. telling schools that they had to get permission from parents uh if students if minors wanted to change their pronouns on school records and then saskatchewan quickly followed suit I'm kind of expecting Alberta to make a move along the same lines, to be honest with you. It it feels like only a matter of time. Don't you think when when conservative governments across the country start making moves like this, uh, sometimes the most conservative governments probably feel like they got to take a position on it. Uh, That's something we're keeping an eye on here in our home province of Alberta. But the Angus Reid Institute's been talking to parents, hundreds of them across the country, and we're going to find out what they've been saying about where they believe a parent's role is in a move like that or bigger picture in anything to do with education, curriculum, the goings-on at a school. Then Danny Parody is going to join us here in studio. She's just won a big award. She probably doesn't want to talk about it. That's the way that most journalists are. But we'll recognize and celebrate that, and then she's going to take us into a couple stories she's keeping an eye on. The unhoused evacuees of the Northwest Territories, plus a big appeal coming up. In an Alberta courtroom, this is a story that I'm not sure everybody's been keeping a super close eye on, but to test yourself as an engaged audience member, as an engaged Canadian, if I mention the two Métis hunters, you probably know what story I'm talking about, right? Two men, relatives, gunned down in their vehicle, a roadside confrontation after being chased down by a landowner who told police that he suspected that they were on his property uh, trying to steal from him. So so he and his son uh, took the law into their own hands, uh, convicted. Uh, Danny Parody is going to bring us up to de- you know to speed on this story where it's at right now. But 
to be honest with you, and I'll save most of it for when Danny joins me in studio. I can't believe it's already appeal time. There's talk about application for parole. I mean, I don't know where you land on this story, but to me, you suspect that somebody maybe did something, so you chase them down on a highway with a loaded firearm and end up killing them on the side of the road, and, and, and you end up what? Like being able to to watch one Olympic Games as a free person and then four years later watch another Olympic Games as a free person to put the time period in perspective? We're not going to play judge and jury today, but man, oh man, when, when I was talking to Danny, uh, you know, in, in sort of in prep, casually discussing some of the stories you might get into, some of the stories that you probably care about, she mentioned that that, that appeal was coming up. She mentioned that parole proceedings were, were quite likely, and I went, already? Strikes me as strange. I'm sure that we're going to get some, some law and order folks, some justice folks that just sit there and say, hey, man, that's the way that it goes. You know, the law turns a blind eye to things like emotion and compelling storylines. But I don't know. I don't know how that's going to land with Canadians. I don't know what message that sends. Or am I reading into it too much? Does it send a message at all? We'll take a look at our live chat when that interview gets going in about 20 minutes. This episode of Real Talk is presented by Business Career College. Are you looking for a rewarding and high-paying career without a university degree? Get started as an insurance professional with Business Career College. You know, in Canada, insurance agents, you know, they start at like 56 grand a year. They can make up to right around 90. And all you need to do is take an approved course and pass your licensing exam. That's it. You don't need a university degree. Business Career College offers industry-leading approved courses in life insurance, property and casualty insurance, and their expert instructors are passionate about helping you launch your new career. Now, here's the deal. Real Talkers is a special offer just for you. Right now, you can save 15% off any BCC insurance course with the code REALTALK. Get started today. The code is REALTALK at businesscareercollege.com. Chachi Curl coming up in just a second. Also wanted to thank uh, those of you that took the time to write in. We're saving some of your uh, emails and some of your notes for Trash Talk tomorrow uh, following our conversation yesterday with Lawrence Mile and uh, Kylie Wren. (laughs) Kylie Wren, that's like a Star Wars character, isn't it? I think so. Carly Wren joined us here in studio. uh, Kylo. Kylo Ren is the Star Wars character. <laughs> That's my Star Wars knowledge is not what it used to be. I know, but I, I know. But it's I knew, okay. Yeah, yeah. But uh, the two of them yesterday talking to us about all, it, it was prompted by this uh, this uh, newest issue of Alberta Views magazine bursting at the seams. That's the cover story that Lawrence wrote talking about Alberta's classrooms. How, how kind of the new normal is like thirty five, and how a lot of people are reporting class sizes over forty. And I wasn't surprised to see our inbox start to ding. You know, right around eleven in the morning yesterday, all the way through the afternoon early this morning as well some of you they're just one-liners you're just reporting numbers to us here's how many kids were in my kids or you know how many students in my kids class and along those same lines and some of you making different points you're talking about the fact that the the buses are overcrowded that the buses are packed and a lot of your kids are on the bus for more than an hour in each direction we had one uh real talker out of calgary write in to say that their kids kindergarten class is 44 students johnny they 
they said that the teacher that's told it, her insane. last year it was 24. Yeah. It went from 24 to 44 in one year. Now, they say, in fairness, they're hoping to split that class in two uh, within the first month. Uh, I guess they're looking for another teacher or whatever the case may be. But can you imagine being one human being in charge of 44 kindergarten kids? Well, we talked about this yesterday, and I said in my kindergarten class, and we were looking at the numbers, 17 is like the max. Yeah. In my kindergarten, I think it was 20. I can't even imagine double. Yeah. It's, it's insane. Unbelievable so. stuff. Shachi ready to rock? She's Let, ready. Let's get to her. Everybody knows Shachi Curl. Uh, she's a trusted voice. Uh, when people are looking to find out or understand what Canadians think about issues that matter, she's uh, a, a longtime member of the media. You've seen her on national news broadcast. She is the president of Angus Reid Institute. It's so good to see you again. Thanks for waking up. You, you look phenomenal. It's like barely, the sun has barely risen in I'm not BC. sure you're actually allowed to say that. Do I cancel you now, Ryan? No, no. In real talk, we're allowed to say things to our friends like you look phenomenal today thank you thank yeah. you very much it's, it's so good to see you makeup hey well we've got we've got uh and our audience is always keen when we somebody see somebody who's just killing it with their background uh and in particular we've got a lot a lot of art aficionados i have to ask you and for the benefit of those listening on the podcast tell us just a tiny little bit about that painting behind you that's stunning so yes, you are talking to a room raider, three-time, ten Ooh. out of ten recipient. Yeah, wow. yeah, very, very strong game. And in fact, I'll just, I'll adjust a little bit more so you can see more of the bookshelf, right? Well like done. That, that's there. You go. Um, okay, so this is a uh, a local artist out of British Columbia. His name. Uh, he goes by the name of Seagull, and uh, he does wonderful prints uh, of places in and around uh, southern British Columbia uh, and places beyond. Uh, and I've got uh, actually a couple of his pieces and very, very happy with them. Sam Seagull uh, has uh, a gallery uh, in Vancouver on West 2nd Avenue. I'm blanking on the name of the studio, but if you Google those things, I'm, you will I'm already... find... I'm already Googling and uh, okay. yeah, because I'm going to, we're going to swoop in and, and try to try to. Yeah. Well, people, it looks like people can just check out uh, Sam's original That's it. Just, Sam's original art. And just go from there because uh, yeah. Amazing. And Oh, look, you get 10%, oh, look, 10% off your first time Please, order. Sam, I, I, I want my kickback now. Please. Yeah. Well, we both yeah, do like, like maybe for talking about this and mentioning this, maybe we both get like, I don't know, a free painting. I mean, I don't want to I don't want to sort of sound entitled here, but, you know, it, it might be nice. Um, I mean, who among us has not shamelessly shilled for the free stuff? On, yeah, you know, obviously. Who among us obviously. Has, has resisted the urge? So some very what I what I particularly love uh, in in uh, my own environment and surroundings are boldness and color. And yeah. you see there's a lot of boldness and color in his work. Oh, there's just a segue just right there uh, to start talking politics, boldness and color and what strikes you and, and what resonates. I was going to talk uh, Poliev and, and, and Trudeau, but but why don't we, you know, we're talking education first out of the gates. Did We did like a, a two hour, we never do two hour shows anymore, but we did yesterday because uh, we had two people in studio who really give a damn about things like class sizes and budgets and private public schools and all that kind of stuff. Um, your team, uh, and I'll call up the story here at Angus Reed, has done some polling on one of the stories that, that I mean, I'm not sure that every single person in Canada feels like it's directly relevant to them, but for some reason it really strikes a nerve with a lot of people. Uh, your team asked Canadians if they think that parents should be informed if their kids want to change their pronouns. Why don't we get into this? 
let's get into it. So here's the deal. Uh, we didn't we didn't start this fire. You can you can take it up with Blaine Higgs. Yeah. Uh, for that policy out of New Brunswick that then just started cascading from province to province. Then it was Saskatchewan. Then Ontario starts talking about doing it, at which point uh, we strongly felt that it was probably a good time uh, and, and have been feeling for some months, actually. This this didn't just occur to us on a whim in the last couple of weeks uh, to uh, measure public opinion and establish a bit of a baseline on this issue in terms of what are Canadians thinking Importantly, what are parents thinking? Um, because, you know, it's 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 one thing to have an opinion if you don't have a child under the age of 18 living in your household uh, that you are responsible for. Of course, you're entitled to your view on that. Uh, there's also, I think, another very significant element to, well, what if you are responsible for a little one and what happens uh, in that situation? What we found actually was not a lot of variance uh, either way. We found that uh, in both cases, a couple of a, a couple of things are true at the same time. First of all, the supposition or the argument that uh, parents should neither be informed nor have to give consent. Basically, that parents should be cut out of the loop entirely if. Um, a child, if a minor, someone in school wants to change their program uh, pronouns, sorry, programs, that's like flashbacks to mm. university. <laughs> uh, I never changed my program. I finished the program. Really? You uh, finished the degree that you started on right out of the I gate? I did. Which and de- on time, remarkably. Wow, what degree was that? Oh, I did journalism and political science. Nice surprise, job. surprise. Nice job. Surprise, surprise. So most um, parents feel like they should like like have some. Uh, yeah. So so there's there's really three boxes on this. There's the don't tell the parents anything. That is the minority view. It's the minority view in terms of the general population. It's also the minority view in terms of parents. You do see more young adults. So people aged 18 to 34 more likely to say, no, 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 parents should be out of the loop entirely. But even then, it's a minority view. That's really important to point out. You've then got uh, a consensus, really, a majority who say, at least inform the parents, at least tell them what's going on. But people stop short of coming close to a majority on the issue of should parents have to give consent? Tell the parents, yes. Require consent? No. And the only place that you see even up to half of people saying that consent should be required, and you've pulled up the graph there, is uh, in Saskatchewan. That's the only place where we see it at a high watermark. And then uh, additionally, Manitoba at about the same level. Everywhere else, it's only about a plurality, only about two and five, or between 40 and 50% who say parents should have to give permission or consent. Everybody else stops well short of that. But the issue of information, tell the parents what's going on. There's not a lot of argument on that one. No, I think that's me. I think that's I think that's where I land on this one. Tell the parents, obviously, uh, but don't require consent. 
I don't know. That sounds that sounds to me to be pretty practical. It's been now, very controversial. Well, Some people course, are very I mad know. at us. Well, I Why know, did Shachi. you do this poll? They keep asking. Why well, did you do this poll? Oh, come on. I mean, people. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why are you platforming? No, come on. People think that we shouldn't be talking about things, shouldn't be understanding things, shouldn't be I digging mean, into, we've done a thousand studies in, a, in the better part of a decade at uh, the Angus Reid Institute. Sometimes people don't ask us that because the issues perhaps aren't as... We, they don't ask us that about cost of living. Mm. They don't ask us that about vote intent. But mm. sometimes we we do get blowback on on asking about issues that are a little bit stickier, a little bit thornier, and that's certainly been the case on this one. Well, it doesn't mean yeah. we're not going to do it. Well, some 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 folks I don't think see value in or or don't want to bring themselves to believe that every issue has nuance or most issues do. Uh, you know, someone will throw like the Holocaust in my face or something after making that comment. But most issues in Canadian politics do require some nuance. Now, I want to be you and I, folks like us, Shachi, have to be careful. When we talk about this because I know that we can be glib and snide and sarcastic and, and, and even have some fun with some stuff that actually is deadly serious uh, in a lot of people's lives. I mean, you talk to a family, a bereaved family that lost someone, you know, let's say a, a, a beloved, you know, family member happens to be trans. They lose them to suicide. This is an issue that for them is a huge freaking deal. Uh, and it's not something, you know, but but I do look at this and, and I find that it becomes so hot button, so polarized where one side on this argues that that you know New Brunswick and Saskatchewan is literally killing kids and the other side is is saying that that you know the other provinces or teachers unions you know are trying to bully parents right out of parenting and then who in their right mind wants to stand in the middle of that and say can we both try to have a conversation about that like why would anyone want to participate in that exercise that's why I'm grateful for poll like yours well I, I prefaced it by saying we didn't start this uh this this is very much something now to to your point have there been situations uh wherein children may be feeling unsafe feeling vulnerable feeling like they need support feeling like the option that they have is to not tell their parents what's going on in terms of their gender identity and and not or and or not feeling safe at school all of those things are true but the stoking of the fire on this the real oxygen to the flame or 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 the propane on the barbecue or i don't use whatever analogy yeah. you want that's been politicians who've said let's do tiringly from my perspective, let's do what uh, they're doing in the States. Let's do what they've been doing in Great Britain, where the culture wars uh, are raging. Let's bring them to Canada and watch it burn. Uh, let us let us uh, bring these issues to the forefront in a way that is already polarizing and confrontational and uh, and watch everyone go nuts and um and to your point, I don't mean to sound glib about it, but it these are the types of issues that stoke discourse in a really impassioned way. But impassioned is almost like an understatement for the kinds of reactions that we get. Again, not necessarily by people who have a personal stake in the issue, 
but by those who just it's it's like stick that finger in an electric socket and let's let's all just lose our minds over these types of issues rather than having rational conversations now i wanted to use this moment to mention uh to your audience that we are going to be in a six-part series on a lot of these types of culture war issues going to be uh, delving into them uh with a series of studies and surveys starting next week on issues uh that dive deeper into perspectives around free speech and whether free speech has limits uh issues around gender uh and gender identity issues around climate and capitalism in the economy issues around race because it feels like we used to be able to watch us cable news uh and and go oh look at all those folks uh freaking out about all these issues uh in a really really um again impassioned it's it's not the right word fervent way uh soon uh, we're going to have some baseline data around where canadians fall on a lot of these issues and really understand like the mindsets of the of of the of that spectrum like who sits where and why do they sit where they sit and what are the sizes of those um segments in in Canadian society and then how does it overlay onto politics yeah it's 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 like that that uh, that conventional wisdom seek to understand um you know we, we i mean i i don't know i'm watching this well i'm not really watching to be honest but we're, i'm aware that uh tamara lynch and chris barber are on trial right now and I'm, it's like i'm interested to watch that too because part of me is i talked about this with charles adler uh on tuesday it's like part of me is like this is like super important like there needs to you know canadians need to understand what happens if you if you like claim that you could overthrow the government shut down the nation's capital for three weeks yada 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 and then at the same time like the average person like does not gaf about this to be honest with you i think most people are so moved on from that even the person that only cleans out their backpack or their you know their daily uh bag you know once a year has has i think people might not even like this comment look at how careful i am now on this but nobody's carrying masks around anymore maybe the odd person i saw one person yesterday wearing a mask getting on a bus maybe they have symptoms or they're feeling sick but when it comes to stuff like the lockdown or or the pandemic or the convoy or this kind of stuff i i feel like a lot of people maybe it's intentional maybe it's subconscious they're, they're they've made the choice to move on uh, have you done any polling on anything like that or do you get that is you have a gut instinct on that personally I mean, my guess is that if we get back into a situation where there is another wave or a surge and it's bad and our public health officials uh, start asking us to wear masks in public places or bring back mask mandates uh, or uh, urge another round of vaccination in uh, in a really uh, strong way, you're going to see uh, the vast majority of Canadians uh, comply lean into that because that's what they did for six waves i mean yeah. i'm speaking to you in vancouver uh we only had for three months in 2020 lockdown but there are other parts of the country that lived through curfew after curfew after curfew um i i say this because people in society are generally conditioned to do what is asked of them for the public good. Now, is there going to be an increasingly sizable and resistant component of society that says, sorry, no, I did this, been there, done that, not going back to it. 
And additionally, my libertarian rights are more important and you can't tell me what to do. Yes, all of those things are true too. But, and and hey, I just, I hope that any subsequent waves are not that bad. And if they are like really folks that, you know, I hope this isn't a controversial or statement of violence, but it's like get vaccinated because that, that's how you avoid the worst of it. But I know, right? If, if you, if you, if you have situations where our public health officials start asking us to do this again, watching this story over four years and wave after wave and of data shows me that people will lean in. The the majority of people will lean in and do what they're asked. Yeah. You wonder if this will become, um, uh, by the way, I always like to represent Sylvia is, is in our live chat right now. She says, what do you, she says, I carry a mask and I wear it. Uh, maybe I'm underestimating how many people do. I just, this is my anecdotal observation. But I, I wonder- still have like my giant pile of masks and I still have masks in my handbag. Have I pulled them out recently? No. Yeah. Because I, I, because it goes to that feeling of vulnerability. Yeah. And it's where personal practice proximity comes into play. So all of a sudden, if a bunch of folks, for example, in your friend circle start uh, recontracting mm. COVID uh, or if someone at work and then it's like, oh, gosh, OK, so now I know people now I might be at risk. Now I might be at risk of giving it to someone else because I was exposed. And that's where that behavior comes back in. Um, as long as most people are sort of hearing about it happening to someone who knows someone who knows someone as opposed to somebody in their immediate circle. Yeah. They may not see the urgency in it. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. I'm still going to wear a mask on planes just because I'm, I'm the, I, I always sleep on planes with my mouth wide open and my wife's always taking pictures of me and wanting to post them of how ridiculous I look. So I've learned now you put the mask on, you put a big oversized hoodie on. I mean, you, you look like an old school bank robber, but at the same time, you can sleep in peace. You know what I mean? Um, it, it, very fascinating polling. And I was going to wonder, you know, when you talk about like things like lockdowns and I, I guarantee we'll get emails from people saying we were never locked down. What are you talking about? But 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 the language that politicians can use to torque this up. I wonder if the, the pandemic will be too far gone uh, by the time we're talking about the next federal election campaign for, for the conservatives to invoke. And I think Polyev's got lots of other red meat for his base. He doesn't need that. He can talk about cost of living. He can talk about, quote, just inflation, all that kind of stuff. But there is no denying uh, from doubling the membership of the Conservative Party through his leadership from from his, uh, quite frankly, impressive fundraising from the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of views that his videos get. There's something different about Pierre Polyev uh, than whatever was driving Aaron O'Toole and Andrew Scheer and, and probably even Stephen Harper, though he's a bit of a different brand. Your team's polling shows that Canadians, or at least those ones that were polled, see Polyev as the best prime minister for Canada by by a huge margin over the incumbent. Uh, by a huge margin relative to Trudeau. So Ryan, do this for me. Let's pull up the graph that actually shows that best PM um, data. And I'll, I'll show you a couple of really interesting things about it. Okay. So yes, uh, if there is a choice for best prime minister, Polyev comes out on top. It does not mean, by the way, a majority of people view him as best PM. But there is a 32%. My favorite data point in in this particular question is the none of the above. Yeah. Uh, none of the above, ladies and gentlemen, in second place at 26%. Justin Trudeau, best prime minister at 17%. Now, um, let's talk a little bit about what's going on with these two leaders. 
There has been a narrative because we see in terms of vote intent now um, a 12 point difference between the conservatives and the liberals. Ryan, that's towards the end of uh, of the post, if you want to call that one up. OK, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So we what we see is uh, an increasing gap, a really big gap between the liberals and the conservatives. What's important to remember, though, uh, is that now that's top issue. And you see there that cost of living and inflation are the top issues. You got to like, like, come back to me, find it. We'll, we'll put there you go. There it is. No, that's approval. See, this is also not. But hold on. Just stay there for a second. Let's talk about approval. The notion that we are somehow in the throes of like a hot, sweaty Pierre mania, I I have to check and counter that big time. It's not that people are warming up to Pierre Polyev in a really significant way. Okay, the way we saw just absolute falling down, uh, swooning and gushing and crushing over Justin Trudeau eight years ago. Like that was a real phenomenon borne out by data. We saw Trudeau's approval at over 60 percent in those in those uh, early heady days of of uh, of his uh, prime ministership. Um, The prime minister today, Trudeau, is down to 33 percent approval. It's bad. It's as bad as it's been since February 2020 which was sort of the trailing period of the we charity scandal it has mm. it has not been that bad since so this is really about the story of the implosion of uh of of the liberals and of justin trudeau far more than it's been the story of um some come from nowhere surge for the conservatives uh, what we're finding is that the liberals are losing support in two different directions. A significant chunk of that support is bleeding over to the NDP and Jagmeet Singh. Uh, Justin Trudeau is losing support among women of all ages who have traditionally represented a really strong support base for for him and for the party. Uh, They're all going to the NDP, but there's about 9% of the liberal base that's now defected to the conservatives. And that's really, really important too. Because when we think about how tight the margins were in terms of popular vote, uh, that means that the liberals could not afford to lose any level of support. Yeah. No level of peodness at the party was safe for them politically. And what you're finding now is that they are in a situation where they're bleeding support um, in, in several different directions. Um, we, you will see in that data just how milquetoast past liberal voters are towards the prime minister right now Uh, in terms of best on economy uh best pm you've only got about half the liberal base that voted for the party in 2021 saying that they see continued leadership and strength for uh for justin trudeau that that they really view him as the guy to keep going uh and to to be the guy to continue to be the prime minister, to continue to be best on economy, et cetera. Compare that to the conservatives who are near unanimous about their leader uh, in terms of confidence in their leader, support for their leader, 
views that their leader is um, is best P- best PM, best on economy, best on a lot of these issues. So you're seeing a great deal of hev- hesitancy, doubt, equivocacy towards Justin Trudeau from the ranks of the Liberal Party um, and and its base. Not not the not the the MPs or the staffers, but but the voters. Yeah. Um, and you see absolutely the opposite in terms of what's going on with the conservatives. They are all in on their guy. The other thing to point out on the other side of the coin, however, is the fear factor. When asked um, what is the possible outcome that you would fear the most, what's the worst possible government or election outcome that that would worry you or keep you up at night, it's fascinating because not surprisingly, conservatives view another liberal victory, whether it's a minority with a confidence and supply agreement or an uh, outright uh, liberal majority. That's the stuff of nightmares for conservatives. Okay, fine. Makes sense. What is also making sense and what is also going to be a bit of a hurdle that Pierre Polyev has to continue to try to um, get past is the fact that uh, all the other major party bases those who voted for the Liberals, those who voted for the NDP in Quebec, those who voted for the Bloc, all identify a conservative win as something that they worry about. So uh, the scary factor is something that Pierre Polyev has to continue to try to turn down when it comes to appealing to a broad base of voters. I kind of I'm not I'm like not comparing the politicians at all, but the scenarios for sure. Um, I kind of feel like in Canada, uh, the liberal base right now has to figure out and I mean, they'll like sink their teeth into this polling and and read into it and try to understand what it means. And obviously some people will say, well, there's time or we can weather this storm or we got to do this. Or, you know, if the the, the Bank of Canada saying no to a to another rate hike, maybe that's like one of the things that starts to turn. I don't know. By the way, all of those things are true. So let's remember let's remember a couple of things in the life and times of Justin Trudeau. He's been down this far before. It's been this bad before. SNC-Lavalin, We Charity, Cost of Living Crisis. There's been a whole bunch of times where people have been like really, really mad at him. And then something changes and they're all like, oh, that mm. guy. We, were, we see that flash of brilliance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the last time it happened was uh, during, interestingly, we're talking about the, the Lick trial um during the emergencies act uh inquiry where he testified in december we saw his approval ratings like shoot up seven percent in a month uh when that happened because it it was a good and solid performance by the prime minister so uh we've been in situations ryan you and i and others who watch politics where we start asking the question can he get out of this is this insurmountable is he done uh, and people have prematurely called the end to his career uh, several times or or prognosticated that he can't pull out of this one. I would say that, you know, if you are the PM, if you are uh, liberal high command, you are going to do everything you can to keep that confidence and supply agreement going with uh, with uh, the the NDP as far as it can go to the end of 2025 or or well into late 2024, wait for that cost of living crisis to to subside or get better. Wait for interest rates to start dropping again. 
And the reason for that is because we have not seen the needle move for the Conservatives on any other issue. So the issues we were talking about before, those social values issues, those culture war issues, those are wedge issues that very effectively delineate left and right spectrum or wing, left, left and right wing voters. Um, it separates them in, in, a, in a really uh, clear way. It's very ideological. If you're someone who's got fatigue with this particular government, if you're someone who's tired of this particular prime minister and everyone starts talking about these wedge issues, the pronouns issues, the social values issues, um, the abortion issues, the mask mandate issues, the vax issues, people are going to say we don't want to cross the street and vote conservative because we look at what elements of their base support and that's not us. Cost of living has been so effective for the conservatives because it's not an ideological issue. It's an issue that affects people at home. It affects their bank accounts, their wallets, their families, their, their grocery budget, their discretionary spending ability. These are really personal things. These are things that affect people at their most proximal level. It's not about ideology. It's about, can I actually make ends meet and make my mortgage and make rent and deal with a mortgage renewal at a significantly higher rate. And what is that going to mean for the family vacation that I promised the kids or for, you know, the swimming lessons or for the hockey or whatever it is? Those things are really, really important. That is what's moving the needle for Canadians right now. That's what's moving the needle for the Conservatives. That issue dissipates. It represents the evaporation of the one issue that's been really effective for the Conservatives up to this point in a way that nothing else has been. Shachi Curl hanging out with us. We've taken you way past what we asked for, but I, I recognize yes. it. it's, oh my it's gosh. but it's still like only eight in the morning and you're the president. So, yeah, I've you know, got, I've got like I, I've got presidenty things. You've got doing. many presidenty things to up. be many, many important meetings to be had surrounded by your leather bound books. Uh, one in closing, just to, just to like a kind of an obvious they're, guy. They're almost all paperback. I, I actually wanted to give you credit earlier to say that you you are a woman of the people with your paperback books. Now, you don't you don't just collect a bunch of hard covers that you put up there to make yourself look ostentatious or unapproachable. You I just want to point out, I've actually read everything that's on my shelves. <laughs> okay, that's something I... don't I... buy a book unless I really like it. That's what libraries are for. And I stopped by... No, I shouldn't say that. That's not true. But I, I essentially stopped buying books a couple of years ago when I realized I have like 300 I've not yet read. So um... I'm, I'm starting to approach the limit. It's like, where can I put another bookshelf? Maybe don't. <laughs> Maybe don't. Uh, we got these little book lights in our neighborhoods. They're like little birdhouse style looking things. And people have the little libraries on the front lawns. I love it. It's such a cool idea. Uh, in closing, center, center left parties, Canada and the U.S., both asking the same question. Uh, politicians at different stages in their careers, different stages in their lives, for that matter. Uh, but liberal supporters in Canada and Democrats in the U.S. both have to be asking, does the current dear leader uh, help us or harm our chances next time we go to the polls? Say, like, you know, Biden, love him or not, uh, is a tough sell for another five years. 
years. I'm not going to apologize for saying it, no matter who cries out about it. The facts are facts. It's a tough look. Um, and if Trudeau's polling doesn't turn around, the same sort of question applies so, in Canada. So just always remember this. It's not ever in a vacuum about how people see a leader, that whether that goes for Biden or whether that goes for Trudeau. It's always a, it's always the way that leader is seen versus the alternative. Hmm. And so the question for Democrats will be, uh, I may not like this guy, but do I want him more than I want Trump? And it's I, I still think that Trump could actually win that nomination. So oh, he will uh, win it. He will win. Yeah, it. he will. OK, so so then it, it's uh, do, you, do you want the guy who's slightly daughtery with the slightly shady son or do you want Trump? And. You know, I, that will be the decision that Americans make in Canada. Um, particular, this, I think, is more of an issue, again, for the liberal base. Justin Trudeau has always been, let me like underline this. He's always been the party's greatest asset and its worst liability. And it's just a matter of which Justin Trudeau is showing up on any given day. It is always such a treat, and I say this from the bottom of my heart most sincerely, to have a chance to chat with you, Shachi, the way that you kind of cut to the heart of issues and understand them and understand why polls turn out the way they do uh, is uh, is uh, certainly recognized across the country, and we're grateful for your time here today. People can check out angusreed.org to learn more about stories we talked about, even stories we didn't. I love that you guys asked union members how they feel about their membership costs and whether or not they're getting value. We had some really interesting emails on teachers' union yesterday and a whole lot more including how the next generation feels about living amid wildfire smoke for the foreseeable future uh, all of that under the direction of angus reed institute president shachi curl have a great rest of your week thanks ryan appreciate it yeah you got it uh danny parody coming up in just a second uh aptn news correspondent award-winning journalist uh but first i want to tell you about something if you're a business owner this is something this is free uh, this is like everybody needs to pay attention to this because there's a really neat opportunity that's coming up. Uh, it's the digital economy program uh, that's delivered uh, here, facilitated by the University of Alberta Center for Cities and Communities. There's no catch here. This doesn't cost you a single cent. This is a free initiative that helps build the online presence of small businesses in the Metro Edmonton and surrounding regions. So registered businesses in the province of Alberta with fewer than 49 employees are eligible for this program. If you, if you, right now you're already going, I feel like you're talking directly to me. We need help with our online presence. We need help with our small business, but we don't have a huge budget. This is for you. The program runs until October 1st of next year, but you're still going to want to get signed up now. It's funded by uh, the government of Alberta in partnership with Business Link, Digital Main Street, and the U of A. They have their business students. These are the business leaders of today and tomorrow that work as consultants for you, helping business owners like you boost your digital literacy with, with how to do everything from creating a Google profile, building a Shopify or Etsy commerce website, setting up Facebook, ad, Facebook ads. You know it. It, it is all free. Uh, some of you are going to be going, I can't. This sounds too good to be true. It's not. And guess what? We're using the program. We're going to tell you how it works out for us, but you can check it out right now at yourdep.ca. That's yourdep.ca. Our friends at California Closets want to remind you that they have established their reputation as Western Canada's best 
in the game of custom closets and storage solutions for your entire home. It's unbelievable. When you talk to a California closets design consultant, right? You request a free consultation. You talk to them about the space you're looking at, the current scenario, what your needs look like, of course, what your budget is and how you'd like it to all come together. Next thing you know, you've got an organizational system that, quite frankly, based on our personal experience, is even better than you imagine. It could be a Murphy bed in the home office. It could be a, an ironing board in the laundry room. It could be those spice shelves you're looking to get out of public sight in your kitchen. Heck, it could be a brand new garage might not get the workhorse of your home working for you with California Closets. You can start that process today at californiaclosets.ca. Hey, Calgary! Calgary, we wanted to tell you about the India Film Festival of Alberta. Now, we were mentioning about their dates in Edmonton, and it was so great to hear about packed theaters there as this ninth annual festival rolled out in Alberta's capital city. Well, now it is moving down to Calgary. That's next weekend, opening night. No, it's like this. What I mean is this coming up weekend, right? So in like a couple of days, opening night in Calgary is on September 8th. It's going to be very special. Special with the 4K. This is a brand new 4K restoration of the classic film Dawn. Eight films showcased in Calgary. Seven of them are going to be shown at the historic Plaza Theater. This is the first time that the India Film Festival of Alberta is showcasing films at the Plaza. This is an amazing opportunity to either jump into Indian film for the first time or if you're a, a longtime fan to see works from some of the all-time greats and some of the most promising up-and-comers. You can view the entire festival program and purchase tickets for the Calgary shows, then Fort McMurray Sherwood Park and Red Deer all before the end of the month at indiafilmfestival.ca We mentioned this yesterday. I want to mention it one more time at least because we had so much fun watching this video and I'll describe it for you podcast listeners on the Kubi Energy Instagram page. They've just posted a video of our wonderful day out at Blackhawk Golf Course in support of CASA. That's Kids and Youth Mental Health Services. Kubi there as a proud sponsor of that tournament and I was just honored to be hosting it uh, for such a great cause. We are so proud to partner with a team like Kubi Renewable Energy that's not only the best in the business at what they do installing solar systems that work but also a team that understands giving back to community they're hiring right now if you're watching on youtube we're showing you some behind the scenes photos of their new space in edmonton they've also got brand new digs in calgary if you're an electrician if you'd love to be an installer or maybe even work in sales kubi would love to hear from you at kubienergy.ca and a quick shout out to our friends at alberta views magazine yesterday what a deep dive johnny i felt bad i know you were feeling a little under the weather yesterday's show was supposed to be like 45 minutes ended up being two hours ah. you were a champ pal you were a warrior still easy work light work best job in the world <laughs> light, light lifting <laughs> i hope uh but boy were our guests ever passionate on education oh yeah some of the challenges uh in alberta right now and across the country it's the cover story uh, in the newest issue, the September issue of Alberta Views, Bursting at the Seams, Alberta's Overflowing K-12 Classrooms. If you missed that interview, check it out wherever you get your podcasts or find it on YouTube. And don't forget, at albertaviews.ca, you can subscribe for a full year for just 20 bucks. That's 50% off an annual subscription using the promo code AVRJ. That's Alberta Views, Ryan Jesperson, AVRJ at albertaviews.ca. 
It's always such a pleasure to talk politics, uh, news, and life with our next guest. Danny Parody is an award-winning journalist for APTN News. Uh, you've seen her published across the country, of course, and, and uh, a trusted voice when it comes to talking about issues that matter to Albertans and people from coast to coast to coast. It's nice to have you in studio. Thanks for making time for us. Great to be here and always nice to be in your beautiful studio. Yeah, it's good to have you in studio. We uh, and, and I'll be honest with you as well. We appreciate because you're always on assignment, right? So you're, you're heading to the courthouse today but we asked if you could swerve down 104th street in edmonton for a quick sec uh to come join us um can, can we talk about the big award first just out of can we, can we get it out of the way i promised sure. our audience I, i'd bring it up okay. uh, a journalist like you i know that you're not driven by awards but tell us tell us about this recent honor this recent recognition and what it means to you oh yeah journalists love talking about themselves yeah, um, I know. <laughs> so the uh, then formerly called Native American Journalist Award, now uh, retitled the Indigenous Journalist Award. Um, it, it was, uh, they, they gave me an award for best profile, uh, so written profile, in their professional three category. This is an organization that does a lot of work to recognize, um, let's say, international, so meaning uh, U.S. and Canadian journalists. Uh, my story was on Wilton Littlechild, which I, as I was thinking back on this, um, the, the day after uh, Wilton Littlechild put the headdress on the Pope, you and I were talking while I was at yeah. Commonwealth Stadium. I, I came in for that, like, yeah. up close, trying to find a quiet room, uh, and, and we had briefly talked about that. So um, that was before I was able to get a hold of him and actually go in and do a long profile piece. But it looks into, you know, his his personal motivations, his his own journey um, as a residential school survivor and as a survivor of, of, of sexual abuse, something that he's been open about. Um, so that was it was an honor to be able to tell that story. And, and of course, the, the great things about awards is that they bring more attention to stories. A hundred percent. Absolutely amazing. He's it's amazing, isn't it? Like when you uh, take a look at, at his career and, and people can can find your story on that again. And, and we'll, we'll put the link to that directly in the show notes for the podcast and the YouTube episode. But but he connects to people like a, across the sporting world. Uh, he had a, a formidable and impressive legal career. His political advocacy has been unbelievable. Uh, the, the leadership uh, positions and roles that he has held unofficially and officially with, with, with indigenous people in Canada and the general population. I mean, just a lot of people will know him candidly as the guy who does the land acknowledgement on the Jumbotron at Oilers games. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just like, you, there's, I, I, there's something about him uh, that that just over the and, and and I mean his even as a residential school survivor some of the the gnarly stuff that I wonder if that's maybe even too candid or casual to, to describe it as but what he survived as a young man um, there's just something about a person like that when you sit down to do a profile mm-hmm. or a feature on someone like that I mean does it, that's not lost on you I'm sure. No, not at all. So it was. Um, I mean, he he is a he's a big get when it comes to an interview. He may he may be somebody that I'm not sure is as well known throughout the country as he is here in Alberta, where sure. he is quite like legendary. So I, I think in some of the reaction to him, um, we saw that right where people were critiquing his actions, which is fair, but they they weren't doing it seeming to understand who they were talking about, somebody who does have the, the most lived experience that you can imagine in yeah. that situation, who has not casually, he didn't casually like the night before think, oh, what the heck, let's just slap a yeah. <laughs> address on the Pope. Like he'd been in ceremony, he'd really been through it. While we were talking, 
um, you can imagine the the reaction I think had rattled him. I don't think that he expected to quite get the you know the blowback. Yeah, the blowback from everybody, um, and and maybe not everybody. But he was he was talking about how he had you know proceeded to to make this decision and and what he had wanted to do uh like how he prayed how he worked with community all of those things and on his desk and there was this was later released so i can talk about it but he had a he had a letter of support from uh, marie sinclair from the truth and reconciliation yeah the chair the chair who was in support of his actions and he he didn't want to go on record at that point with who had sent this and that's just another like, mm. you know, you're you're under fire and here you have a letter from the chair of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It would be very tempting to slap that out. Uh, and, and Marie Sinclair did later release that. Uh, but it was uh, it, it, we were I was looking at it. I could see the name. I looked mm-hmm. at him. I said, are you sure you don't want to say who that's from? Mm. And, and he just wouldn't. He's a very humble person. Well, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, gosh, I mean, I, I shouldn't. I who cares about my opinion on this? But uh, yeah, I just think if uh, if not Wilton Littlechild, then who? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I mean, it just goes to show as well, obviously, to state the obvious, the importance of storytelling and, and journalism uh, like yours. You are currently working on and you've you've essentially just broken in, uh, in the last day or so a story out of the Northwest Territories. Is it fair to say that while the eyes of a nation may be on a, a, a general region, when I, when I say community, I say it in an all-encompassing type mm-hmm. uh, sense, um, you know, Yellowknife, as Yellowknife evacuates, it feels like almost an eternity ago now, doesn't it? But, but, but you know, several weeks ago as Yellowknife was evacuating and we're there talking to a government minister in Northwest Territories and everybody's, you know, feeling for these folks, obviously, and resources are being flown in everywhere. Uh, and then Kelowna starts on fire and then the collective attention goes there. Despite the fact that there are millions of eyes on a story, there are still stories that go untold. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is until a journalist like you steps up and starts telling them. Talk to us about this story about the unhoused evacuees of the Northwest Territories. Yeah, so on if you're if you're on YouTube, you can see there's a picture of Sarah Abraham, and I, I will talk about her a little bit later. But the the crux of this story is uh, that the n- not just Yellowknife, I think that's important to say, but Yellowknife, Hay River, Fort Smith, uh, Fort Providence, a, a lot of places that were evacuated, and and some are still under an evacuation order, like Fort Smith. Um, they they moved their unhoused population. And uh, when I saw the premier talking in uh, the premier of Yellowknife, or sorry, the premier of the Northwest Territories, that is talking about how um, she was driving around because she's actually a former social worker. So she was driving around looking for unhoused people and making sure everybody got out. They So they really forcibly removed these people from the community. A lot of them went to Calgary. A lot of them went to Edmonton. Um, well, a few of them went to Edmonton. And then some of them we don't really know. So at that press conference, she'd referenced that, that there were some challenges in, in getting a hold of the unhoused. And, and a few people uh, from Yellowknife, it, it's not my normal beat, but our, um, our reporters actually on maternity leave up there. So she herself was evacuated. Some of our other northern reporters were evacuated or, or couldn't get into the area. So, um, you know, that's what happens at a small news organization. You yeah. step in. 
And uh, so as I, some of my past interviews were talking to me and saying, we don't understand what's happening with the homeless population. And I think somebody needs to look into this. Uh, so I asked their assistant deputy minister, uh, last name Tordif, uh, what, what's going on with this? And he, they, through comments from him, through comments now released by, uh, not in the story, but through the, um, the housing, the municipal affairs and community minister, they have lost track of some of the people who they forcibly relocated. The city of Calgary has said that they were working with evacuees who were registered and that um, and and the um, the deputy minister has also talked about how they're, they're trying to encourage people to return or let them know. But it, it's quite clear that they don't know where these people are. Like this could be I mean, this, you know, and, and many people's lives are, are changed forever by mm-hmm. fire. But but in a circumstance like this, you could have who knows how many people yeah. Uh, who, who are now in a situation where with with very meager or little to no resources before now, yeah, they're if we can wrap our mind <laughs> yeah. around it, have even fewer resources yeah. you know, or, or, or have less access to important connections to community. Yeah. So so where does this story, do you think, go from here? I mean, this this strikes me as a story where maybe your journalism puts this on the radar of people in the public service that need to move on something. I, I hope so. I mean, the answers I was getting, I would categorize as disturbing to say, oh, well, we can't force force people to come back if they don't want to is just a, it's a complete dereliction of duty you need like you're you're responsible for these people who are vulnerable who have no resources but to at least make sure that they have the information it is true of course there may be people who decide to stay sure um and and that's fine but at least we know who they are we know where they are we know that they've made that choice because these people have families you know our, our own unhoused people have families um that that do look for them it doesn't mean that you know, you can always have people living with you. It doesn't mean that those circumstances happen, but it doesn't mean that you don't care. And so it seemed it seemed like a, quite a shoulder shrug of a response yeah. from the government. Almost um, kind of like, what do you expect us to do? What do you want yeah. us to do? Yeah. Kind of a thing, right? Yeah. But there are these stories, and, and oftentimes, well, I guess this is probably almost every story, where the, the collective attention moves elsewhere, mm-hmm. right? Like, you you know, you've, you've been thinking about the, you know, what was the biggest story before the Kelowna fire? Well, the Yellowknife fire. What was the biggest story before the Yellowknife fire? Uh, Right. Yeah. There were big ones. There are big ones. There's huge mm-hmm. trials going on across the country. There's political developments. There's I mean, that, that's that's why I think, you know, uh, a lot of people, you know, we almost need to be reminded of these types of things. You look at the families, uh, communities, businesses impacted by fire, like just because the fire's out. Mm-hmm. What are they doing now? And some of them are still sifting through, you know, remain charred wreckage, essentially. Yeah. Right. Like starting not even starting to rebuild yet. I mean, mm-hmm. for a lot of these people could be three, four, five years or never that they return to that normalcy. Absolutely. Wildfires are kind of a uniquely traumatic situation. Um, That's one thing that I'm hearing from people, uh, both on the expert side and on the individual side. So Yellowknife didn't burn down. Same as earlier in the year, Fort Chip was another fire. It didn't reach the town site. But people people were removed. They were staying in hotels. There's been drug overdoses, drug poisonings, uh, because it's a very traumatic situation to be moved from your house and to have so much uncertainty in your life. Uh, Not to mention... If you're somebody who comes from a rural community, all of a sudden you're in a city and you're having to navigate that. Uh, And if you've never done that before, that can be quite jarring. You're coming into Edmonton. And this is where I want to talk about Sarah Abraham, who was was not really that 
shook up actually like i i finally found a yellow knife evacuee uh she had actually just purchased a cabin where she lived in fort smith so she she's not technically homeless but she was she's a member of the vulnerable population anyway she's hanging out by boyle street which edmontonians will know is like a social community and um she had a there was a an unhoused man using her lap as a pillow which was really interesting when i came up and talked to her and um and i I met her through uh, judy at bear clan and I, I started asking her, you know, are you? Do you feel like you're hearing the right information from people? And and she was. She was informed. She had a hotel on the south side, but she felt more comfortable where she was staying when she would just stay with people that she knew in the community. And while Sarah was here, she was also distributing Noxalone to people. There were people that she helped somebody who had had an overdose. Oh, geez. and that was actually what she wanted to talk about. Yeah. Was just it kind of broke her heart that that was happening. And I thought, what a what an interesting crossover and and what a thing somebody who's already experiencing the trauma of being moved is now experiencing an Edmonton trauma which I'm sure you've seen Mm -hmm. you have an office downtown there's multiple overdoses every day going on in the city so that's like another layer of things that people get to experience when they come when they have to move further I dropped a little tidbit on the show a a Mm -hmm. while ago this was a a passing conversation I was walking my dog past a firefighter's house didn't know he was a firefighter Mm -hmm. he stopped me Mm -hmm. uh, listens to the show and he said hey he said something you need to look into something you need to dig into he says the, the city of Edmonton he goes we're not reporting like for the fire department, I'm not. I've not yet spoken to the chief here on this. Okay, so this is let's just say uh, this is alleged, uh, a, alleged <laughs> right. uh, circumstance. He says that, that they're not tracking it as like drug poisonings or overdoses anymore. He says I think because they're trying to. He says they don't. They don't want those numbers to be too out of control. So I said, so where, how are they tracking them? He goes, well, you'll see something like unresponsive or mm-hmm. choking or you know, mm-hmm. he's so, which is kind of an interesting one. As Danny writes that down in her notepad, why not go get them? I mean, if this is a true story, mm-hmm. that's pretty remarkable. I just mm-hmm. watched that. Have you watched the Netflix miniseries Painkiller? I haven't. No. I just finished it last night. Six mm-hmm. part series on Purdue Pharma mm-hmm. and OxyContin yeah. and man, oh man, I'm like. If, I digress, but that's an amazing personal story that you're telling. People can read that at mm-hmm. aptnnews.ca. Again, we'll link to it in the show notes. If you say the two Métis hunters, mm-hmm. uh, virtually anybody that pays even passing attention to the news is going to vaguely remember the story, but there are new developments. Can you can you bring us up to speed on, on where this story's at? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so you mentioned that I was uh, going to the courtroom after this, and that's because there is a appeal for Roger Bilodeau, who was um, sentenced, uh, convicted and sentenced for manslaughter um, for 10 years, but given four and a half years credit, time served. Uh, so it, it's... His appeal is going on, and then we can expect pretty soon that we'll see uh, the uh, the parole process get start to kick in, um, which the parole process is designed, I would say, like in contrast to the states where you get kicked out. It's like, here's 20 bucks. Good luck finding your way home. The parole process is designed to integrate people back into society. That's the purpose of it. But for victims, for somebody like Sarah Sampson, who was Jacob Sampson's wife, it all happens quite quickly. That's what she's told me. It's like, it just seems like, you know, they just finished the trial. And then all of a sudden you're hearing, you know, you're you're hearing concerns about parole. All of a sudden there's an appeal. And so that like once that system gets going, it it is difficult for survivors uh, f- from the family. Well, and I'm not even 
I'm not connected to this family, but mm-hmm. I just think, I mean, and again, we, we sort of teed this up early in the episode, the story here, most people yeah. will remember like two family members, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, Maurice Cardinal, Jacob Sanson, hunting buddies as well. Yeah. Um, and, and they're out and about. And, and I guess really, who knows the actual full truth, though trial has concluded, but basically mm-hmm. these other two, father and son figure that these guys are casing their property. Wasn't it? Was, yeah, isn't yeah. there even some question around like they thought that their pickup matched the description of a mm-hmm. pickup that might've been, or was on their property. Yeah. It, it wasn't like the, okay. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. So one, people one can of do the their own reading, but basically them. this is a story of a, of a guy and his son who took the law into their own hands yes. and, and killed two guys by close proximity gunfire yeah. on the side of the road. Yes. And now in a very short period of time, uh, which is uh, maybe a, su- a subjective analysis or interpretation on my part. We're already talking about parole. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I, I just think that this is my, I can't imagine being a family member in this circumstance. I would be quite frankly outraged. Mm-hmm. I think in, in any circumstance, it's never going to seem long enough. Somebody takes your loved one from you. Yeah. There's no period of time that could pass that you would really feel like you, you know, got, back what you've lost and that's why you know a lot of people in in who have interactions with the system call it the the legal system rather than the justice system there's no justice to really be had with this immense loss that said um yeah Morris and and Jacob they they were they were hunting and that kind of sounds like to some of us kind of like a fun casual like activity but they were also substance like substance hunters that's what they did providing their for families. their families yeah. so sarah and her children have lost their provider lost somebody who helped them to have food to eat that's not something that a, sent, a prison sentence brings back um but it during the trial they also had to deal with a lot of stereotypes about indigenous people there was a lot of focus on on drinking and hunting and and like what what they were doing and the criminality of or the supposed criminality of these two men yeah um who were not criminals they were two guys that were hunting and they i guess just like they they briefly stopped in a driveway that's what started this um and one of the billido sons said I thought that I thought that truck was here earlier. The father, Roger Billido, then jumped in his truck and chased these two men. Um, they had an altercation in a ditch after being chased. They they did sort of stop. They got in a fight, as you can imagine. I'm sure, sure adrenaline was pumping. Uh, and there is video, which you know APTN doesn't show because that's it's. It's, traumatic it's video. video of a murder, but yeah, it's video of a murder. Or- so that that was captured, and and in some ways you know, that helped to lend the credibility to the people that were shot and left in a ditch to die. Was there, was there any, like, I don't know how the the details of this trial, but like at what point were police called? Like were police called when this civilian pursuit was underway? Were they called after shots had been fired? Like what was the, unfortunately it doesn't appear like they, they, after shooting the two men, they did not call for help. It was it was later that uh, and I'm not I forget the exact detail there, but okay. they, they did not call once they'd you know shot them. They decided to go home instead, huh. and that was another 
thing that the judge considered when it came to sentencing and, and moral culpability. Moral culpability. Mm-hmm. Yet, in a and, and, and I want to also say, like, let me just say this for the second time to show on the record, I'm not purporting to play judge and jury here. Mm-hmm. I don't think that I'm some sort of like moral grand poobah that can be mm-hmm. issuing rulings on people. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, you, you, you shoot somebody, you have very good reason to believe that they're deceased probably or, or gravely injured, mortally mm-hmm. wounded, uh, and, and yet don't call police, yet your eligibility in the public perception or through legal channels to apply for parole right now is because of an assumption. Again, this is my civilian understanding. Take it for what it's worth, which may be nothing. Uh, that you can, again, be or that you can be rehabilitated to be a contributing member of society. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, yeah, you think you're right to be cautious here because it is in an appeal. Of course. And so, you know, you as a journalist, too, you never want to do something that's going to cause issues within the trial. But we can definitely talk about the the legal system and the parole system which as i've said is designed about to reintegrate people back into society and and so our system works a lot on rehabilitation versus punishment um and i i would say i mean i i don't think that anybody thinks that punishment 100 percent works in all situations but that said for the family it is difficult to find yourself in this situation and you know some of some of the um samson and cardinal family actually work in uh they work with prisoners they work in prisons and they're they're kind of having to deal with the reality of like something that they believe which is in rehabilitation and the reality of like what it's like to have your family member taken away unbelievable what some people walk with on a daily basis um i I know you got to get to court and i respect your time but i have to ask you about this This is kind of more of a local story i guess for Mm -hmm. for people that live in and around the city of edmonton but but also this is a story that could be applicable across the country and around the world um you've been reporting on it people can check it out uh, on aptn's national news website the city of edmonton hit with a lawsuit over removing or dismantling, taking down uh, encampments. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, uh, the picture that I used there was, was a really interesting picture. So it's the city of Edmonton, it says affordable housing, and behind that picture, there's an encampment. And that kind of encapsulates what we're dealing with here. Um, That's there, an amazing photo. Thank you. There are over 3,000 unhoused people, and there's people so that of those people there's about a little bit over 1300 who are not provisionally accommodated which means they're not staying in emergency shelters they're not staying with friends or family they are you know sleeping rough they're living quote unquote on the street absolutely and so considering that we don't have the shelter space for everybody that's what uh chris weeb uh, from tom engel i think is been on the show before uh, i don't know if tom's ever returned okay. an email well, from tom, me i don't think tom <laughs> okay. likes me very much okay yeah moving on no, that, no um, that's so okay tom we can dig into it. yeah uh, so he's he's a lawyer who's quite critical of the police i think we can say it's probably yeah, he what he's is. most well known for online i would say um but in this case this is uh chris weeb from his office is uh is representing the coalition for justice and human rights so an advocacy organization in a charter challenge against the city of edmonton for their clearing of encampments so they They've called this an inhumane policy and they're launching the charter challenge saying that the uh, that the unhoused still have the right to personal property and also that because there isn't sufficient accommodation, you can't forcibly remove people. So they're also asking as an for an injunction to help stop people from stop the the 
it's a kind of a joint effort between the police and the city of Edmonton when it comes to encampment clearing. We should call Shachi Curl back in and ask her to get Angus Reid to do some polling on how Canadians would feel about this. Because you know what the average person's attitude is going to be, right? Uh, the average person will probably, like, the, their, their empathy you hope would impact their perspective. And they would say, well, people have to have somewhere to go. There's got to be somewhere to go. And, and, and then the other part of them is going to say, just not right here. Just not right here. Just not right here. I think it's probably fair to say that most people, most average people have balked at like having encampments in, in their community. Um, like you mentioned, this is happening across Canada. So there's other jurisdictions like BC and Ontario. Um, actually, the Superior Court in Waterloo, uh, they found that a municipal bylaw was against the charter. So the same cl- encampment clearing, same policy. The city of Edmonton has decided to stay the course for the time being. I don't think I don't believe that they've changed anything in their policies prior to the lawsuit being heard or, or outcomes about the injunction. So they clearly feel that this is the right way to proceed. Perhaps that is because of what they're hearing from citizens. It's, it's hard to say exactly how they come to that calculus. It's not something that they're very open about. Uh, but we have been talking about this since at least April or March of this year is when they came out with a new encampment policy. Yeah. And a lot of what the city would tell you, if you had a city councilor right here, they'd be pointing their fingers at the province and saying, we absolutely want to do something, but we need funding from the provincial and the federal government to help provide shelter, accommodations, and even, you know, health care. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. We talked our most recent sit down with uh, Mayor Amarjeet Sohi. We talked about affordable mm-hmm. housing and, and you're exactly right. I mean, that's that's what they do. And, 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 and a good part of that is coming from a, a place of sincerity, I think, uh, prompted by a real talker by the name of Curtis. I want to let you know that we've booked for next week uh, a housing Roundtable, a real talk roundtable on housing. That's going to be next week on the show, and, and we'll hit it from a, a, a whole bunch of different mm-hmm. angles. Um, the, yeah, this is like the Edmonton's council in the city of Edmonton, and 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 even for that matter, uh, agencies like the Downtown Business Association, the Edmonton Chamber of Commerce, like mm-hmm. all of these. Uh, they there are like dueling narratives, yeah. and, and one of them, and and both are true. And one of them is that there's a real lack of affordable housing and supports for like the unhoused population, exactly what you're talking about. And another one is that people don't feel safe downtown. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and you know, whether or not this is accurate or based on crime rates or, or who's, you know, carrying out these crimes or who, who is the source of the problem or mm-hmm. what is the source of the problem. Yeah. And we could talk for five hours about that. <laughs> um, but, but people are, are, would probably suggest that big encampments perpetuate the notion that downtown Edmonton is not a safe or welcoming place as fair or unfair as that may be. Mm-hmm. And so the city of Edmonton is having to deal with that optic because there's very real consequences to the tune of hundreds of millions or billions of dollars of, of development and confidence and tax revenue and all the other kind of stuff. And then there's, there's kind of a third voice, I think, which is the people in the encampment themselves. So yeah. this story is not out yet, but I, I will be writing it Friday. I think Uh, so that's um, I I went in and I spoke with people and the people who are removed in the encampments, they do find this an incredibly stressful situation. They've lost possessions that they've cared about. I believe that the city did do their best. Like they do notify people that that uh, the camps will be closing. But that said, you know, these are people who have. Let's, let's, I think it's safe to say a lot going on in their life. Yeah. Uh, may, that doesn't mean that they have somewhere else that they can go. It's not as though clearing out the encampment create just solves the problem. It, it doesn't. You still have unhoused people, and there's not enough shelters. So 
you can't just transport people to shelters and and have a safe place for them to live during covid actually boyle street told me this they they did a lot better because they had this provisional housing um a lot of the apartment built the, the empty uh, hotel buildings were being used for provisional housing and that gave the ability for people to have a safe place to return to you know one of one of the basic rights i think that that we have as people is to have the the right to have shelter especially in a in a winter climate like it's getting colder people need somewhere safe to stay and so it is going to be the local administration's job to help make sure that that exists yeah uh, one final question mm-hmm. i promise i'll let you go um you just mentioned this very briefly in passing i don't know if the name you used was donna or something you said you said i heard about this from donna at bear clan right? oh yeah judy and, <laughs> judy yeah. pardon me uh but i think that like some people in edmonton may know about bear clan patrol and, and understand that like remember that that uh, encampment a couple of years ago down near the baseball diamond mm-hmm. yeah. by the ballpark near river valley road there uh, bear clan patrol was kind of took a more prominent role and was doing news interviews and things like that mm-hmm. and for, is, who, who would you compare them to like are they like the guardian angels <laughs> are they like the black panthers like mm-hmm. what would like who what would you say is tell us about the bear because you're obviously interacting with this right. group they're feeding you news tips i would imagine they're working with you to integrate uh, some of these in is that true i mean is that uh, accurate? yes yeah J- uh, judy did did actually help me she so she has the trust of of the unhoused population Yes, uh, because she's going out. She's giving provisions to them, sandwiches, water, things like that. Uh, I'll tell you just what Bear Clan means. So in um, Anishinaabe teachings, maybe not probably not solely Anishinaabe teachings, but that's the one I'm familiar with. Uh, so the the bear, if you're if you're a member of Bear Clan, you're a protector. It's your job to protect others. So that's the, the symbol of the bear is a protector for our people. And so Bear Clan means that you're then responsible for taking care of the community. And that's that's what Bear Clan stands for. Comparable to um, I guess there's other homeless advocacy groups. There's uh, Bear Clan's actually across the country. It's not organized uh, but i believe it started in winnipeg yeah yeah where they then have their where they have the patrols they have the volunteers uh but judy is kind of a force unto herself here <laughs> yeah. in edmonton uh out there doing things she's also keeping an eye on things you know while i'm there she's out there like the, not to be she's not trying to be but she's shaking people awake because some people if they're kind of slumped over you can't tell is you don't a, know is this a poisoning situation so she's waking people up she's checking on them she's asking questions she's checking how they're being treated by police by the city she's like she really has dedicated her life to this yeah um danny parody uh it would be impossible for me to have any more respect uh, for what you do look at that for for our <laughs> podcast listeners i'll let them know we're seeing that 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 is the smile of somebody who recognizes uh i think the significance of winning best feature story at a national award ceremony for journalism. That's Danny Parody, correspondent for APTN News. Thanks for your time, mm-hmm. sincerely, and we'll keep a keen eye on, on, on this story that you're about to cover down at the courts. Absolutely. All right. We'll you see got you later. It. You bet. This episode is made possible by Real Talk sponsors and supporters like the family-owned team at Grand Dog Essentials Quality Raw Food. And through this month, want to let you know that there's a couple of things that they're keeping an eye on and they want to make sure is on your radar as well. So you may know the health benefits. You've been reading about the health benefits of feeding your dog or even your cat quality raw food. But if going raw is maybe not an option for you right now, it's okay. 
They want you to know that adding just 10% of fresh food to your dog's kibble bowl can create positive change in their body by providing nutrients from fresh food sources. So we could be talking about something like veggies, raw eggs, bone broth, raw fermented goat milk, sardines, omega-3 oil, stuff like this you can find under the supplements tab on the website granddog.ca or you can check out their kibble bowl boost supplement bundle. This is designed to help your beloved pup digest their food efficiently and support their immune system with omega-3. There are so many great tips and really, quite frankly, learning opportunities by visiting the blog at granddog.ca, including the essential vitamin test. Did you know you can do vitamin testing for your senior raw-fed dog? I know that's going to be speaking to some of you. That's, again, granddog.ca. For the humans... Matter of fact, if you keep the chocolate out of it, I think the dogs can have ice cream. Johnny, I know as a matter of fact, some dogs who really like ice cream. You know, Dairy Queen has doggy cones. Oh, have you ever gone through the? You ever gone through for Priscilla? No, we've the, we've got like a natural one in our in our uh, freezer, but I, I've never tried the doggy. You got to take Priscilla through a DQ drive-through, and they'll get they'll give you the, the dog DQP B. I, I, Dairy Queen. I, I don't know. It sounds too complicated to try to do the DQDB. Dairy Queen Doggy Blizzard. I like that. Well, not a doggy <laughs> blizzard, a doggy cone. It's the doggy cone. Ooh. Yeah, they love that. The dogs love the ice cream. See, see the excuse is you take your dog through the drive-thru at a location in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, or Insured Park at Baseline Road. Then you can get yourself oh, a treat. Now you know what I'm saying? You know where one. I'm going with this? Yeah. Like the pumpkin pie blizzard treat. That's September's blizzard of the month. Real chunks of pumpkin pie in there with the classic Dairy Queen soft serve topped with whipped cream, nutmeg. It is absolutely the quintessential fall blizzard, and it's the blizzard of the month at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Our friends at Friesen Brothers have a lot going on, including this month. We're going to be talking to you a lot about that uh, tradition of the Alberta Beef Roundup, but it starts with the Alberta Beef or the rather, Alberta Corn Roast. The Alberta Corn Roast, a cherished tradition at Friesen Brothers, uh, kicking off harvest season, and, and of course the Alberta Beef Roundup. Coming up on September 9th, that's this Saturday from noon to 4, visit your local Friesen Brothers store, 16 of them in Alberta, for an amazing afternoon with community members. It's a great chance to immerse yourself in the spirit of the Alberta Beef Roundup while connecting with neighbors and discovering more about this fascinating tradition. Friesen Brothers, for more than 65 years, is Alberta-grown, and Alberta owned. Our friends at Eden Landscaping want you to know that just because the leaves are starting to turn, is your backyard full of leaves right now like mine? No, not not that bad. Really? Actually. Really? Yeah. Ours is like covered. So I'm, <laughs> I'm just like reckoning with it. I just about wore a big chunky sweater in today. But, but you got the fake grass. You can just sweep it now. Yeah, well, I just, <laughs> I, just I, I use a battery powered blower. Uh, you notice how I clarify. Yeah. I don't want anybody writing in about the two stroke air, you know, uh, anyway. <laughs> battery powered blower. It's going to look great all year round. The point is they're not hanging up their shovels quite yet and they're definitely not putting away their drafting pencils. That's because year-round Eden Landscaping's working with its partners, its clients, to make sure that the designs are ready to go for spring. They're a custom landscape builder which means they're offering full project management. So whether it's a big excavation project, maybe you want to run natural gas out to your garage, get a heater in there on a thermostat before winter hits, or maybe a retaining wall so your neighbor's fence and yours doesn't collapse. 
They can get going on some stuff before season ends and certainly get the plans moving. Mike and his team will to make sure that you're ready to go. They're working year-round. Eden Landscaping is at landscapeedmonton.ca. Our friends at Complete Care Restoration... I mean, this, these are conversations. We talked to Danny about wildfires. We talked about floods with Anne Castleman. By the way, did you hear that Anne Shabata Castleman, her, her interview here on Real Talk on Tuesday about Canada and the year 2060 and climate change and all the stuff coming up, they booked her on The Social. Oh. She's on The Social today. There you go. How cool is that? So make sure to support her by checking out that interview. Complete Care Restoration, obviously they're hearing from people in Alberta that are dealing with fire and flood damage. And they're setting them up to be in a position where they're getting their lives back. Why should you choose them? Well, they've got a team of trained and certified technicians, in particular, specifically certified to deal with water damage, to deal with asbestos. They can even sample and analyze building materials to make sure that you don't have hazardous substances in the way. It's all part of the Complete Care Restoration Service. They hope you never have to call them. But if you do, you can find him at 780-454-0776. You got a little jump in your step now. (laughs) Ready to go. You're feeling better. I saw you mentioned, uh, well, I heard you mentioned painkiller. Have you seen Dope Sick on Apple TV? Michael Keaton. I gotta watch it. Yeah, what is that? That's like eight, six or eight episodes. It's better. It's better. It's better. Yeah. I feel like the the painkiller. I just got watched done watching it too. Acting was a little. It's not the greatest. Really? Yeah, it's not the greatest. And the, it was a little. Who, who, the great Matthew Broderick. You didn't like his. I mean, he was okay. The whole story is a. It's a little sensationalized. Like if you actually read about the Sackler family and stuff, and and I get that. That you have to. You have These to are the it. inventors of OxyContin. Yes. And people yes. say basically the family that fueled the opioid crisis. Purdue Pharma. Yeah, and uh, which is now pretty much defunct it's in bankruptcy or it hasn't gone through yet but uh yeah i thought matthew broderick was good there's it's just i don't know if you watch dope sick compare the two because there's a difference there but they're both about the same thing basically and and i understand you have to have composite characters that kind of encompass like all the people there was teams of people going after purdue and the sackler family right and they try to encompass them all into like you know the one female lead there in painkiller and in dope sick they do that too or it's rosaria dawson so yeah she's great um, but yeah watch watch them both they're both great but yeah it's just insane the way like (laughs) i don't i don't think people i I know people know but like literally it's heroin right it's all opium it's all from the same poppy plant and it's just i get that people i know people need these pain meds you know people with cancer people people are going through hardships people are at the end of their lives but uh the way the Sackler family marketed this thing and pumped it out into the public was just, I, I don't see how they're like not all in jail. It's ridiculous. Well, it's, a, I mean, and they're I still it, billionaires too. They're it, worth the family about 13 billion. So. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fair to compare, you know, big pharma to big tobacco in a lot of ways. Um, and Shabbata Kassman on, on Tuesday, if you missed that episode, um, comparing uh, big oil and big tobacco in an interesting uh, comment that she made. Um, yeah, it's you, you look at these 
these industries, these titans of industry, and then you know the the legal entities, whether it's the DOJ in the states or whatever it is, uh, mm-hmm. equivalents here in Canada and other countries around the world that would go after them, and and the challenges that stand in the way. And I mean, I mean, newsflash: billionaires rarely go to jail. Yeah. Like <laughs> newsflash. Yeah. Um, but yeah, a compelling story. I thought the most powerful, and and I don't want to sort of spoil too much because I do recommend that people check these shows out. Um, I thought that the most powerful. 30 seconds of every episode of painkiller is at the beginning oh yeah instead of just having what you'd call like a slate or a board or a graphic that comes up with words on it and then a narrator's voiceover that says the events depicted in this episode are you know meant to reflect true events but are you know fictional characters and yada yada any similarities are you know coincidental or you know like we're all familiar with that disclaimer Mm -hmm. instead uh for all six episodes they have the parent or parents of a, a deceased person that was wrestling with an opioid addiction. Yeah. It's- and uh, we've had, I think of Petra Schultz, one of the founders of Mums Stop the Harm, uh, who's been on the show several times. We've spoken uh, to, to mothers and fathers that have lived the worst nightmare of losing their beloved child uh, and, and other family members that have lost loved ones to an opioid addiction. But they come up and they're holding so the first 30 seconds of the episode is like a mom or a mom and a dad uh holding a photo a framed photo of their beloved son or daughter and they'll say while the events of this episode are based on truth but represent fictional characters what's not fictional is my son and then they tell over the course of one or two sentences a very brief story about a bright-eyed humorous, beloved, big-hearted human who sustained a back injury, uh, became addicted to opioids, mm-hmm. and, and and ultimately paid the ultimate price. So, like, I thought, for me, it really sets the tone for that, for each episode, yeah. those first 30 seconds where you go, that is real. That's the face of a major loss. It really hits home. Yeah, that that particular epidemic of, of opioid addiction. And and we didn't... Now everyone's like, oh my God, how did this happen? But you got to remember this started in like the late 90s. Like the internet was just kind of coming around. People didn't have the view they did of the world. Um, but I mean, it's still happening every day. 20 people a day in Canada, 40 people in the States uh, still dying of opioid addiction to things like Oxycontin and other drugs like it. And it's just horrible because... The stories you're hearing are, you know, it's not the normal people who you would think get addicted to opioids. People who just regular everyday folks who just yeah. hurt their back or hurt their leg. I or feel like I've getting said a car a accident or million whatever. Times it sucks that you have to say things like to get uh, the general public's attention on something. You have to like it's like when you say, you know, uh, firefighters or paramedics responded to a drug poisoning or to an overdose uh, in the suburbs. Someone goes, ooh, yeah. like, what's the story there? Yeah. Everybody sort of thinks that it's, you know, we talked to Danny Parody about, about you know, encampments, for example, people experiencing, you know, homelessness. And, and you go, okay, well, is that where all the drug poisonings are happening? Yeah. Uh-uh. It was uh-uh. everyone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. I, this I promise partic- no spoilers, but I wanted to say, like, it's 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 not lost on you when you see the, 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 the youth and abuse of opioids uh, in these episodes by people even working in the industry, obviously. And both of those specials based on books, which are amazing, which you should read as well, but just crazy. Like, doctors were addicted. The salespeople were addicted to it. Everyone was... 
Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, unbelievable. Or, or, or and even if not addicted, sort of casually using yeah. it. You know, grinding it up and snorting it, and then mm-hmm. you know, uh, all of a sudden, everybody, n- nobody thinks that they're going to become the one that gets addicted. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody thinks that if they hit the pipe or if they hit the bottle, that they're going to be. You know, or if they put 10 bucks on the hockey game, you know, bet this, that, and the other, uh, that they're going to be the ones whose lives ultimately end up, you know, being dragged into the ditch. Mm -hmm. But that's the story and the way it goes. I mean, you watch the show and you're like, I wonder to myself, like, if that happened to me, if I had, you know, recovering from an injury or whatever, I, I would be like... Yeah, I'd probably say no to everything right about now and just kind of go through the pain because I'm one of those people who, I don't know. I don't know. I'd probably get sucked in as well. Right? I feel like I would too. Yeah. I just have an addictive personality. Honestly, That's, I would. And, and if something eases your pain and then and then you use like a tiny little bit more, you get prescribed, your prescription goes they up. They had 160 milligram tablets of this thing at one time. Yeah. They took them off the market. They were called oxycoffins. Oxycoffins. Yeah, wild stuff. Uh, hey, if this, uh, I know I say this a lot, but it's, it's because we mean it and it's because it always happens that something that we talk about even casually or candidly uh, at, a, at a you know person-to-person level on the show resonates with you and you've got some personal experience or something to say about it Uh, we want to hear from you this is a show that's driven by and is produced for an engaged audience and uh, you can find us at ryanjesperson.com the contact link there send us an email or hit us up on twitter instagram or tiktok man all of a sudden i checked yesterday seven thousand followers on tiktok all of a sudden yeah growing way to go growing you deserve credit man a half a million views of one of our recent tiktok videos unbelievable yeah the kids love us make sure you the kids love us <laughs> the next gen of real talk audience members hey speaking of that as we wrap right now i wanted to let you know that uh two of our newest best friends are going to join me here in studio tomorrow it's going to be our real talk round table and it's going to be an introduction of the two recipients of the real talk julie roar scholarship you're going to find out who they are you're going to hear the heart-wrenching elements and the soul-filling elements of their stories much of those stories still to be written that's coming up plus trash talk presented by local environmental services that's coming up on friday's real talk Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, Executive Producer Josh Dunford, Technical Producer John Hicks, General Manager Katie Cook Chivers, Account Coordinator Lawrence Durlego, Human Resources Lena Shepard, Website Design Mike Johnston, VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandy Morin, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a Relay Project. For more, check out ryanjasperson.com.